Audio Parfait. Welcome back to Open a Fucking Book. All right, I'm Kevin. I'm Stephanie. I hope you all enjoyed our first episode of Mary Wollstonecraft. Uh, not, I know if you went for the first five weeks, before, and I keep saying I'm, I'm going to stop talking about Burroughs, but for some reason I always find a way to talk about Burroughs because that five weeks of hell that everybody had to go through, uh, it's just, you know, so much different than the other one. Because people are asking me, like, well, if I'm starting to listen to the podcast, what should I start off with? And I think, God, don't ever judge a podcast off its first episode. And I look at the first series, the Mark Twain series, and I'm like, we did okay for our first series, but I look back on it and I listen to it. It's like, oh, God, because we, even though it's been a short time period, we've changed a lot since then. The way we do it, there are cadences and, and the um, research, everything's changed since then. It was only a few weeks ago. So it's like, well, not that one. And then I look at Robert E. Howard, it's like, Eh, it's probably not the best one to start off with either. And then I look at Harper Lee. It's man, she was a little boring. Fuck you. you start with start with Burroughs. I'm sorry. It's long and it's hard to get through because he's so horrible after half the thing. <laughs> start with Burroughs. Yeah. So, but I'm I'm you know we get through Wollstonecraft and I could say start with Wollstonecraft. Start with Wollstonecraft. Go women, right? Yes. Okay. So when we last left Mary. Joseph Johnson and his friend Thomas Christie had just asked Mary to serve as one of the primary book reviewers for a new form of literature. Now, Mary was 29 when she began reviewing books for the Analytical Review, which was a newly invented kind of literature called, any guesses? A magazine. Oh. Uh-huh. So between her work translating books and now reviewing them, she learned a lot about the uprising of the French Revolution going on in France, which would be weird if it took place somewhere else. Well, yeah, because French, French Revolution. French Revolution. <laughs> uh, it became the topic of discussion in all of England. For Mary, the revolutionaries in France proclaimed the ideals she had held most dear to renunciation of tyranny and redemption of the poor and oppressed. And thanks to a, let's say, friendship with Henry Fusili, a German-Swiss artist who liked to brag about his sexual ex uh, exploits and scorned conventional morality, she had changed her views on women's sexuality and thinks women should embrace it instead of ignore it altogether. That anything men could do, women could do. So if men wanted to go out there and be whores, it is okay for women to do the same thing. It's still a stigma today. A guy goes out there and sleeps with a bunch of women, he's a stud. A woman goes out there and sleeps with a bunch of men, she's a slut. It's that it's not right. They're both sluts to me. They're both right. sluts, yes. Uh, but they should do so proudly and without question. Now I don't I don't go too in the depth with her relationship with Fusili because it's Fusili. Were they fuck buddies? No. So here's here, uh, and we're gonna Friends get into with benefits. No, <clears throat> we're gonna get into it real quick so we can get it out of the way because it does play a part in how she thinks later on as it comes to um, loving relationships. But 
it's such a long kind of drawn out story between the two of them just to come to a weird ending that I didn't put too much in here. So I'll just get through the relationship real quick. Uh, she met Fusili at one of Thomas Christie's parties and she was not physically attracted to him. For some reason, people, women were physically attracted to him. I don't know why. Um, the guy who says inconceivable in all the, in the uh, Princess Bride. Yes. He kind of looked like that. Yeah. But he was brilliant. And that held a lot of weight. Plus, the way people looked then and what they felt was attractive then, not the same as they see now. It's, you know, different times. He was married, but his wife kind of understood that he was going to, he was a certain way. He was going to do what he wanted. So he slept with a lot of other women. There was uh, rumors that he actually had a relationship with Joseph Johnson. So there was a lot of rumors going around. He did have sex with a lot of people who weren't his wife. Mary was not one of them. Mary did fall in love with him for his mind, not for his body. To the point where going without him for any stretch of time was depressing for her. She fell into a despair because of it. So, and this is one of this is one of those times where I tell you she's her own worst enemy. She comes up with this cockamamie fucking idea, and you see it went with like with Jane, how she, obsessed she was over her, and then with Fanny, how she became obsessed with her. Yes, she became the, she became the same type of obsessed with uh, with Henry Fusili. She needed him in her life for the conversation. She loved having conversations with him. So what she does is she goes to his house with his wife there. And again, this takes this takes months for this to happen. So I'm kind of jumping ahead. But at the end of it, she goes to his house with his wife there and said, pretty much proclaims her love for her husband, Henry's wife's husband, Henry, and uh, tells her that I don't want him physically. You can have your husband physically. I just want him for the conversation. So she proposes that she move in with them so her and Hen Henry can have a uh, emotional and mental relationship while he has his physical relationship with his wife. Can you guess how well that went over? If, if it was me, I'd punch somebody in the face. Okay. So, and you hear this a lot with men and women. They're, they're married. One of them has an affair. It's, well, do you love her? Uh, uh, it, was it just sex or do you have feelings for her? So it, it seems like for the wife, the sex part of it, uh, she wasn't a fan of it, but she kind of understood. But when it comes to feelings, those nobody else gets those because that's really when everything completely breaks down when you start having the feelings and 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 the conversations that you should obviously be having with your spouse with somebody else now obviously you and i are in a very loving marriage and if the physical part of it ever happens one of us cheated it we would be completely devastated but in this case at the times and the people that wasn't so much the case they and i can't say that she wasn't devastated that he wasn't that he was sleeping with other people but this really said the the whole 
Well, I want to have conversations with him. I, you know, I have to have a conversation with him all the time. I just want to talk philosophy and I want to talk revolution. I want to talk this with him all the time. That was the step over bounds. Yes. Yes. So she barred her from the house and told Henry he was never to see her again. And in a very uncharacteristic moment, Henry agreed. Uh, he was never one to say, my wife doesn't want me to see this person, so I won't see this person. But with this, he understood. Mary really overstepped her bounds, and he couldn't have it. So he pretty much cut off all communication with her, which really put her into a depression. So you'll hear me talk about um, the relationship she had with Fusili every once in a while, about how it goes back. All the shit that's happening to her at one certain point should go back and think about that. And, um, but that's pretty much the story in a very tight nutshell because it's much longer. If I would have left that, his, the whole story with him in it probably would have been a whole nother episode because it's quite a, a tale. Okay. Okay. Back to what we were talking about before. She was uh, starting this work with the Analytical Review. And she had opened up more about women's sexuality. The first test of her medal came that November when the 60-year-old 60 60 year Edmund Burke, the greatest Whig orator and writer of the era, condemned the French Revolution, publishing an angry response to a book of the previous year, Reflections on the Revolution in France. They're very witty with the names of their literature. Yes, I, I can tell which Mary had praised in a review for Johnson. Mary read Burke's attack with outrage. Burke said, quote, Tradition should be respected, government revered. Above all, change should be regarded with suspicion and liberty treated with caution. So, with the encouragement of Johnson and her other liberal literary friends, she took on the duty of writing a rebuttal. Burke's work was called Reflections and it sold well and quickly. Mary decided to call hers a vindication of the rights of man. Men, it's plural, I'm sorry. It was published just 28 days after Burke's. That's how quickly she got this shit out there. And at the time, authors usually signed with just initials, so she signed it M.W. And since no one knew a woman had written it, it sold well. People actually took her seriously. Again, no one knew she was a woman. Even opponents acknowledged that the anonymous author had written a strong argument infused with passion. After such a warm reception, Johnson and Mary decided to reveal her name in the second edition. A radical step, but their optimism proved to be misplaced. With the revelation of Mary's identity, Reviewers condemned her as a female upstart rather than addressing the idea she had put forth. Critics who had originally praised the work now complained about its faults. The book was suddenly incoherent and absurd. Mary was prepa prepared for these attacks. She knew that she was venturing into taboo territory. But after the positive response to her first anonymous edition, her courage had grown. She was ready to stand behind her ideas. Fortunately, her fellow radicals gave her enthusiastic support. Thomas Paine, 
deep into composition of his own rights of man, told Mary that he regarded her as a comrade in arms. Many new supporters also came flooding in, liberals who believed that the author of Rights of Men had taken on a tyrant and come out the victor. They clamored to meet Mary, buying her books in droves. As a result, the book sold about 3,000 copies, which is a, a large amount of copies to be sold in that era. Wollstonecraft had finally set her mark as a leader in the revolutionary movement. After surviving the onslaught of criticism over her gender and authoring The Rights of Men, she decided to again put pen to paper in January of 1792, The Vindication of Rights of Women, hit bookstores and libraries. Mary still appealed to readers' emotions, and she had in her just as she had in her first vindications, but she also intentionally wrote, quote, as a philosopher. She declared that her book was essential for the future of humanity because it outlined the evils of the present state of society and introduced solutions that would redeem men as well as women. You see, at this time, feminine deficiency was an assumption most people did not think to question. Fire was hot, water was wet, women were foolish and weak. That's just the way it was. That was the status quo. Even worse, as Mary saw it, women bragged about such frailty, regarding weakness as an asset. If a female fainted easily, could not handle spiders, feared thunderstorms, ghosts, and strangers, ate only tiny portions, collapsed after a brief walk, and wept when she had to add a column of numbers, she was considered the feminine ideal. Mary scorned the idea that being delicate made a woman more attractive. She thought women had been trained to be empty-headed. They were not intrinsically less reasonable than men, nor were they lacking in moral fiber. After all, if a woman is told over and over again that she does not have the ability to reason her way through a philosophical problem, that she does not have the strength to climb a hill, that she is incapable of making the right choices, of course, she will doubt her own ability. If she is deprived of all reasonable education and instead taught to play a few songs on the piano, dance a minuet, and say, Enchanté. If her sole occupations are to study fashion, read silly novels, and gossip, then of course she will lack discernment and depth. The real problem, said Mary, was not women, but how men wanted women to be. She saw that if women were trained to measure their worth solely by their ability to be attractive to men, then being love will, loved will be the extent of their ambition. For society to flourish, both men and women must have higher aspirations. They must also be governed by reason. In addition, it was sacrilegious to teach females that their only responsibility was to be useless to a man. The notion directly contradicted scripture. Eve was from Adam's rib. Not his foot to be below him, not his head to be above him, but from his side to be equal. That's the whole point of that story, is to say that he is, she is your partner, not your slave, and not your leader. But yet, there are so many religions in which the woman is treated as... Yeah, and Christianity is one of them. I know, I it, know. It, 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 it very quickly goes back in on itself. Yes. So that's another podcast. 
To Mary, the greatest tragedy of all was that neither men nor women saw anything wrong with their cultural assumptions, their culture's assumptions about femininity. Progress required a dramatic change in how both sexes imagined themselves and their relationships. Liberty, true liberty, blew down walls, tore open gates, and destroyed the fences of enclosure. Women needed to learn there was more to life than romance, and men needed to aspire to more than sexual conquest, not just for their own sakes, but for the sake of a more just world. And in the same way that women should not surrender their rights to men, humankind should not sacrifice their rights to tyrants. Quote, A revolution in female manners would reform the world. Mary knew that the link she made between the tyranny of governments and the tyranny of men over women would enrage many of her readers, but she did not care. Quote, I here throw down my gauntlet. Rights of women was just as successful as rights of men. She had made a significant name for herself. She now had many disciples and just as many enemies. Her insistence that women's rights be included in a society founded on the basis of personal liberties was one of her most important contributions to the political philosophy and what would, what would come to be known as feminism. She's the OG feminist, really. Of course she is. On November 13th, just as Mary was finishing Rights of Women, Johnson hosted a dinner party to honor the 54-year-old Thomas Paine. Fresh from America, Paine had published his own Rights of Man earlier that year and had already sold 50,000 copies. He was in the midst of putting the last touches on his Rights of Man Part II, in which he would make his most decisive, decisive statement on behalf of liberty. Johnson invited Mary because Paine had expressed admiration for her work. He had also invited William Godwin, then a journalist without any books to his name, largely because he, he had pestered Johnson for an invitation. Mary and Godwin didn't much like each other at first. At all. They were completely different. Godwin quiet and reserved, almost void of emotion. Mary was loud and brash and in your face. Anytime Godwin tried to say something, Mary would cut him off, pretty much ignoring him. His writing was too polished and flowery for her. He thought hers was messy and unorganized. Neither were wrong. <laughs> they went, Godwin's, Godwin is very, I learned it this way. It has to be this way. And Mary didn't learn anything at all in schooling. She just, she wrote the way she wrote. So one was, if it wasn't grammatically correct, it was shit. And the other one was never grammatically correct. So they were completely different. But neither one were wrong. He was too pompous about his writing. She, maybe not enough. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's why... Some of these quotes didn't really make yeah, sense. Yeah, because you were at, right before we started uh, recording, she has a list of, of quotes that she's going to read for Mary because um, my uh, accent isn't quite to what a woman is. And um, she's like, are you sure about... So is this right? I'm like, yeah, that's right. What about this one? It's like, no, no, that's right too. Okay, because it's a quote, so you have to say it the way she said it, but... Yeah, but she should have had commas and other words would have made more sense. Again, and she, I know, I know. 
It, it will become no an, formal it will education. Be, it will become an issue uh, later down the line when she's writing. It'll be on the third, the, on the third and final episode um, when she's writing then. And that's really all we're going to hear about Godwin until the third episode. So just have that little nugget of William Godwin in your head now and bring him back up in about a week. Okay. So in May, after Payne published the second part of his Rights of Man, King George declared him a criminal, charging him with sedition and banishing his work. Hate mobs chased Payne out of the country to France, where he was instantly hailed as a hero. Because, you know, the French and the English hated each other. Yes. Angry at this treatment of her friend and inspired by his example, Mary decided to join him there. She would go as a foreign correspondent for the analytical review. It would be dangerous. Men were murdered and women were raped in the streets by unruly mobs. But in December 1792, Mary rolled into Paris. Okay. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was dangerous at that time. Oh, I know. It was very dangerous at that time. About Tale of Two Cities, dangerous. I I think those cities are dangerous all the time. Well, this is I mean this is right in the middle of the French Revolution. Things are people are really and. It, any, and then we'll get to that in a second, but any even inkling of there being an English person or an English spy, immediately, you know, you're done, thrown in jail. And she was English. Not a spy, but things get very tricky over in France for, for the English. As it was expected, the city was dirty and segregated by class. She went to stay at the house of her sister's friend, Aline Philetaz. She was out of town, but the servants were there. But they spoke a very different dialect of the French language. She wasn't, she didn't know this dialect. So they're both speak, they're all speaking French, but they're not speaking the same French. Yeah. So she didn't understand them. They didn't understand her. It was a rough beginning. On top of that, the revolution was in full gear, and she had to hide the fact that she was English, or else she would probably be killed. The French revolutionaries wanted nothing to do with neighboring European countries, going as far as setting up their own calendar and even the changing the way you could tell time. A hundred deci minutes were equal. There was a uh, hundred deci seconds in a minute. A hundred deci minutes in an hour. And about 144 regular minutes would go into their new hour. That's uh, oh. <laughs> And again, to bring it back to Burroughs, this is also where he got the idea of making his own calendar. Remember we talk about that. Yes. Yeah. This is where he got the idea. So, again, they go, parag- she goes paragraphs into how they made up their own calendar and everything. I did not get into that. But they changed, they fucked the calendar and the clocks and everything all up just to set themselves apart from the rest of the world. She watched as King Louis XVI was carted off to trial and was in the city at the time of his beheading. While she agreed with the revolution and taking power from the uh, aristocracy, she disagreed with the sheer violence and thought that the killing of the king was actually a setback instead of a success. It showed they were no better than the ones in charge. And they, instead of change, all they really wanted was power. Frustrated by her lack of communication, Mary took a cab to the home of a literary Englishwoman, Helen Maria Williams, whose book she had reviewed favorably for in the previous spring. William had since moved to Paris. Williams had since moved to Paris, 
where she published glowing reports of the revolution that enthralled British liberals like Mary. At Helen's, Mary was able to hear the news of the day in a language she could understand, which is very important if you want to know what the fuck's going on. Yeah, you think that she depends on how much time she spent there, but eventually you would learn to pick up a few words or phrases now and then when you're communicating with people. Yeah, eventually she starts to understand a little bit more, but it's still, it, it's really hard to, to pick up a brand new language when you don't have anybody there to even help you. True, very true. Sensing the darkened move of the country that spring, many expatriates fled back to the British shore. Mary herself was tempted to leave Paris since there might come a time when she could no longer when it would no longer be possible for her to return home. But she resisted the impulse, deciding to brave it out for the sake of history. Spending February and March practicing her French and recording more impressions of the city. As a celebrated author, she was invited to many of the most important salons and political gatherings. People liked her in this new world, and she liked them. It was refreshing to live in a society that valued women and their ideas. In London, she had been a rarity, often the only woman at Johnson's dinner parties. But in Paris, the social climate was entirely different. The revolution had played a positive role in women's lives, granting them significant legal privileges. Divorce had been legalized the preceding August. And in April of 1791, the government had decreed that daughters could inherit property. Now, the Marquis de Condesset, one of Mary's new friends and an influential deputy in the convention, was arguing on behalf of women's rights to vote. Quote, women should have absolutely the same rights as men. Either no individual member of the human race has any real rights or else all have the same. The Marquis, a moderate leader, even recruited Mary to help help in the 1793 National Convention devise a plan for the education of women. Sexual mores were also undergoing a revolution by 1793. So many traditions had been thrown out the window that it seemed that nothing was now taboo. Pretty much everyone was fucking everyone else. Married or not. Not Mary, but pretty much everybody else. Just big orgies. Yeah, pretty much. People were going to parties and they just end up going one way and Mary didn't have any, any uh, didn't partake. She probably didn't drink that French wine. She was a little prudish. Uh, <laughs> again, reminds me of, of you. Uh-huh. Is if there had been big orgies going on, you would not have been. No, I would not have joined in. I no. would not. I would leave the the, yes. the area and be like, "You guys do you. I'm out of here." Yeah. So again, that's kind of how Mary was. She didn't say anything. She's like, "Well, you guys do whatever you want." She just didn't partake. So in April, Mary attended uh, a party at the house of Thomas Christie, one of the owners of the Analytical Review. And on this particular evening, Mary was soon at the center of the of the throng, laughing interrupting and arguing feverently about the future of the revolution with the flashes of insight and wit that everyone always remarked upon, entirely unaware of a handsome young American named Gilbert Emily, eyeing her from across the room. With her chestnut hair falling out out of its pins, her 
flush of energy and her voluptuous figure, Mary seemed to Emily to be eminently desirable. It would be his mission, he decided, to get her to notice him. For the time being, though, he contented himself with watching her in action, beautiful, intelligent, and full of life. Aw, she's got an admirer. Yes, she, oh, yeah, she does. Little is known of Gilbert Emily's early life. We do know he was born in New Jersey in 1754. Oh, she's got a guido. He served <laughs> He served during the American Revolutionary War, uh, where he rose to the rank of first lieutenant in the Continental Army. Though, I'm not saying anything bad about New Jersey, but this sounds like a very New Jersey thing to do. He would later call himself Captain, even though there's no evidence he ever actually attained the rank. <laughs> again, some New Jersey stuff. He was a ladies' man. It's, again, a very New Jersey thing for all of our listeners out in New Jersey. It, it's, it's not an insult. I bet he was part Italian. Uh, it, it, does, it doesn't say what his uh, nationality, what his um, ancestry was. Uh, he was a land spectator, an amateur philosopher, an author, and some say a spy. In the weeks following the party, Emily began to pursue Mary, and although she had not noticed him at first, her other suitors soon paled beside the the exotic American. You exotic American. <laughs> yeah, because we're so exotic. Well, then we kind of were. <laughs> there weren't near as many of us then as there are now. Emily had a frontiersman quality. Quite a frontiersman's quiet dignity. When he had an opinion, he got straight to the point, not wanting to hear what others thought. A lot like American. His manners were forthright, his American accent distinctive. Before long, Mary discovered that their political views were almost identical. They both believed in liberty, equality, and women's rights. Both supported the revolution. Both were worried about the escalating violence. They spent the next few weeks in early April getting to know one another a little better. By mid-May, she was he was declaring his love for her and asking her to move back to America with him. She seriously contemplating the contemplated the idea. She was also falling in love. Ooh, girl. But you can't be a feminist if you're gonna You can be a feminist and still be in love with a man. No, I wasn't gonna say that, but What were you gonna say then? You can't be a feminist in the UK or England if you're gonna move to America. Well, she was in France at the time. Yeah, but she was... She would have been perfectly content just moving to moving to America, getting a farm, having some kids, and uh, writing. She'd have been perfectly happy with that. It if, would have started the feminist movement in America sooner. Uh, well, maybe. Probably. It, it's because it was... Women were treated a lot worse in America. Uh, they were. They weren't quite equals but i mean but you look at people like uh dolly madison who most people say that she was the real president that james madison just kind of leaned on her through everything that she was really the one pulling all the strings behind him everybody had a hello dolly that's who the story is about everybody had the utmost respect for dolly or they feared her because they knew how powerful of a woman because of how intelligent and how ruthless she could be. So there were plenty of women in America at the time had, you know, had power, had 
you know, a ghost of power. And uh, I don't I don't think women at this time in America were treated nearly near as badly as they were in England at this time. But she's in France right now. France, the French women are getting treated pretty well right now. Now, this was during a time when you had the Jacobins and the Girondins. Pretty much the Jacobins were the ones that wanted the king executed, and the Girondins wanted him exiled. As the days grew warmer, the political situation became increasingly unsettled. The death of the king had not solved the people's problems. Bread was still expensive, and they were still poor. Angry outbursts erupted in street corners, and more and more, quote, enemies of the people were denounced. Gilbert and Mary watched as their French friends, the moderate Girondists, battled for their lives against the radical Jacobins. They knew that if the Jacobins got into power, they and their friends would probably be executed. So they rushed out to a cottage about four miles northeast of the city city walls, not 100% safe, but much better than living in the city, Plus, it had the added, added advantage of finally being a place where her and Gilbert could get some alone time. Even go as far as partially live together. Not quite, but they would be able to be with each other a lot more. This is also where, again, some biographers and some historians like to say different things. But this will also be where she finally loses her virginity to Emily. Some people say, oh, well, that happened way back when she was working for Lady K or Mrs. Dawson um, because she she was, you know, in the limelight with all these men around her. And, of course, she had, ended up having sex with them. But there's no evidence of it. Um, but there was evidence of her losing, of her finally being with Emily at this cottage. Unless she was raped before then and that you know this was her saying yes i will have sex with you you know giving permission and the only evidence we have is saying that this is where she probably lost her virginity so that's what this show is going to go with okay you're out there you know something else you believe what you want as far as this show goes she waited till she was in love with gilbert to finally lose her virginity hey guys have you been trying to grow out that beard i know it took me a while to grow mine let me tell you about the people over at TheBeardStruggle.com. They have the ultimate collection of beard growth and care products for guys who are just starting their beard journey and only have a little bit of stubble, all the way to men with glorious chin locks all the way down to their belly buttons. They use 100% natural ingredients, never test on animals, and promise a 365-day money-back guarantee. And now, if you use my coupon code KevinY15 at checkout, you'll save an additional 15% off your order. So go to TheBeardStruggle.com or use the link in our show notes and get everything you need to keep that face fur healthy. And don't forget the code KevinY15. That's K-E-V-I-N-Y-1-5 for 15% off today. Go. Now, Odin demands it. There was, however, a darker side to love, as with Jane and Fanny and Henry. Whenever she couldn't be with Gilbert, she was in despair. Gilbert was somewhat of a businessman, so he couldn't always be around, which meant she didn't get to see him whenever she wanted. This, for her, was a problem. Homegirl's got some separation anxiety. Well, you, you got to look at her childhood. Their father, her father and her mother. Look, I mean, look how fucking horrible it was. Yeah, it's true. Her I father mean, abandoned them. I don't them. like being away from you either, but it's no, because... No, but I'm awesome. 
You are, and we do spend a lot of time together. So when we're apart, I... Can you hear me scratching my itchy beard? No, not really. No? I thought it was going over the mic. But yeah, she does have some separation anxiety, and it, it gets worse. So don't expect it to get any better. It's going to get worse. What show are you on? I mean, you know it's going to end up getting worse before, <laughs> before it gets any better. That's 2020's motto. Yeah. She tried to let him know about it. She didn't want to worry him or scare him off. She just wanted him to realize that the money side of life wasn't what was important. What was important was being with the one you love. It was terrifying to her to need a man this much. She knew that she could not be happy without him. I mean, she saw what her mom went through and she saw what other women went through and she didn't want to have to depend on a man, but now she was she was seeing that life without him really sucked. Yeah, I I could, like, I don't need you financially. I don't need you physically. Like, I could survive without you financially. I could survive without you physically, obviously. But... I, I, I like don't if think... I if I lost lost my weenus in the war. <laughs> yes, okay. or if you died, I or you know if we uh, anything ever happened between us, I would miss our conversations. I would miss the emotional attachments we have. Well, and we the new generation of how you meet somebody. You know, usually you'd meet somebody face to face, and it was that immediate attraction, and then you build off that. But for us, we did the online dating thing. So, yeah, we saw each other's pictures, but for us, it was a meeting of the minds. We talked and talked and talked until we finally met. And by the time we met, we felt like we knew each other very intimately. So, yeah, you'd go back, you know, 20 years. That's a different thing because, you know, unless you did the video dating where you get the little <laughs> <laughs> But But, uh, yeah, so I feel the same way. With her, it's always... It's never a physical thing. It's always, I just want to talk to him. But no telephones. Couldn't always be there to talk. He had other Can't shit to do. shoot a quick text no. or an email. And she hated the fact that he loved money more than he loved her. Because that's what Gilbert was all about. He was a businessman. He wanted money, 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 money. That's an American for you. Yeah. So in August, as the Jacobins took more and more control, they decided it would be best... In order to keep Mary from imprisonment, they would register register her as Emily's wife at the American Embassy. That way, being known as Mary Emily wouldn't leave the French revolutionaries to think that she was an English spy. So, by the end of the summer, Mary was back inside Paris, living with Emily. Now known as Mary Emily. But they weren't technically married. She almost immediately started recording the events of the ongoing revolution in the best detail she could. She was the happiest she had been in years until late September, early October, when Emily left on business to Scandinavia, and she was again in despair. She hated it when he left and was annoyed that he cared so much about making money and not enough about the plight of the people. Also, she had missed her September period, leading her to believe she was pregnant. Huh. In October, things got worse the theme of our show. We should have named it Things Get Worse instead of Open a Fucking Book because every time we do a story, it's Things Got Worse. The British had won a significant battle over the French and had proclaimed young Louis XVII as king in France. 
which, of course, enraged the Jacobins. Soon after that, Jacobin secret police started scooping away any English visitors that they could, including anyone that harbored or befriended them, calling them the enemies of the revolution. They even threw Helen Maria Williams into prison. Fortunately, she and her family were rescued by wealthy friends and escaped, escaped to Switzerland in the spring of 94. But the impact of Helen's imprisonment left its mark on Mary, who would commemorate her friend's ordeal in her next novel, naming her imprisoned heroine Maria. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Real life finds a way into your stories. Every time. Every single time. The horrors of the revolution shocked the rest of Europe, pretty much killing any support from the liberals in Britain. People like Mary and Helen Maria were no longer heroines, and imprisonment seemed a just punishment, not only because of their support of the revolution, but because they were women who had dared to involve themselves in politics. <clears throat> This didn't bode well for Mary because even in the face of danger, she had a hard time keeping herself away from politics and speaking out for reform. She's she in this way reminds me of our daughter, who we always we always say, you need to just shut up and go before you get in more trouble. Yeah, but no. Go. Yeah, but she doesn't know when to shut her mouth. No, she doesn't. And she gets it from her mother. I know. <laughs> yes, she gets it from her mother. Uh, you have a few friends that are listening to this going, yep, yeah, mm-hmm, yep, yep. She gets it from her mother. Yeah, they're agreeing with me. I know you hate it when your friends agree with me, but they're agreeing with me. She gets that from you. All of you can suck it. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. I know when to stop. But I don't want to necessarily stop. That's the difference between my daughter and me. Okay. See. Okay. Okay. I'll okay. I'll give it to you this time. The French attitude towards women was about to take a dramatic turn for the worse. In October 16th, the Jacobins executed Marie Antoinette, and with the death of the Queen, a storm swept the country. The revolutionary leaders said that the queen had been governed by, quote, uterine furies. They think they're clever. They wanted a new France to be like ancient Rome, where each sex was in its place, men made the laws, and women, without allowing themselves to question it, agreed in everything. Fuck that shit. On October 30th, they rescinded the rights women had won in the early days of the revolution. Divorce, inheritance, legal representation, and barred women from joining revolutionary clubs and taking part in political demonstrations. All that progress, just gone. I mean, we're starting down that road now anyway, aren't we? Yeah. Of just going backwards more and more and more. Yep. Yep. Gonna keep going that way until we get a woman... In the White House, probably. I can start running next year. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. Oh, I'd make a great president. (laughs) I would. Vote for Stephanie. AOC 2024 is what I'm saying. But that's another podcast. By now, Mary knew for a fact 
that she was pregnant. Uh, why you would think that the thought of having a baby in a war-torn land where the locals are turning against you and your kind would be worrying. Mary loved the thought of being a mother and used it as an inspiration. But while the thought of being a mother excited her, she was saddened and in deep despair over the absence of Gilbert. She wrote him constantly, so much so that he couldn't keep up with the responding to her letters. He wouldn't be able to get a letter out before another one came in. No. She's, yeah, she's one of those. Like, okay, psycho. Calm down. November came and went. As did December, her despair was turning into anger. She claimed that he didn't truly love her or their child. All he really cared about was making money until January 11th, when he finally caved and asked her to leave Paris and join him. She apologized for her accusations and quickly packed for the journey. Like, you don't love me. Yes, I do. Come here. I'm sorry. She, she's as strong-willed and as powerful as she is. She's still just... She needs reassurance. She's a, she's a little neurotic. No, I, I kind of get that sometimes. Because there's sometimes where... Like, you seem standoffish, and I'm like, do you still love me? And I get upset because you're not acting like it, and I just need the reassurance. But this is, she she gets angry, and she goes off on him, and the second he's like, no, it's fine, come here. She's all like, I'm sorry. She's a little neurotic. A little bit, but she just needs the reassurance. Well, yes, yes, she needs reassurance, but she constantly needs it. Again, stems back to her childhood. In her luggage included the still unfinished manuscript to an historical and moral view of the French Revolution. In Scandinavia, she felt like she was in a different world. She could not get the Parisian newspaper there, obviously. She had left many of her books behind as well as her friends, and yet she was happy. Living at long last with Gilbert, she holed up at her desk trying to finish her treatise on the revolution before the baby came. As ambitious as ever, Mary returned to the great question of political philosophy she had asked in both of her vindications. What was the origin of society? What are the natural rights of men and women? What role should government play in the life of individuals? Rather than starting her book with the fall of Bastille or the National Convention, or for that matter, any time in the 18th century, Mary began in ancient Rome. Her goal was to, to demonstrate how the revolution fit into the overall arc of human history. And so she traveled briskly through the Middle Ages, Louis XIV, Louis XV, before she arrived at current events. Humankind, she said, she said, had progressed from tribes to nations, from monarchies to republics. The goal of government should be to protect the weak. The American Constitution, founded as it was on the basis of reason and equality, should be an inspiration to other countries. To Mary, quote, Liberty with maternal wings seems to be soaring to regions promising to shelter all mankind. Of course, it was no accident that she would characterize freedom as a mother and a father. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, Lady Liberty. It's a when you get freedom and you get rights, it's like a loving you're being trusted in it's something that your mother it's does. Very, it's very motherly. Yes. Yes. Mary completed French Revolution in April. Now, she did not care how soon the baby arrived. Since, quote, The history is finished and everything arranged. 
Finally, on May 14th, just two weeks after she turned 35, Mary gave birth to a baby girl who she named after her oldest friend, Fanny. She required only the help of a single nurse, no doctors. She knew that giving birth was a natural occurrence, not a disease, and that she trusted her own physical strength to get her through. The day after giving birth, she was up and about. Her and Fanny were just fine. This is something that will also carry on about the whole education part of it is she believes that girls should be educated, that you can give birth to a child without a million people there to help you. You don't have to lay in bed for six weeks after a giving birth. It's natural. Been doing it for hundreds of thousands of years. We can continue to do it. You are strong enough to do this. A lot of people, a lot of women, they get pregnant at this time. A lot of women would get pregnant and then they'd just be held up in bed for forever because they thought they were taught that they were too weak to be able to handle anything other than just growing the baby. We all know that a pregnant woman can do pretty much anything anybody else can do. Yeah, you just have weight limits and stuff like that. But you they... worked like three jobs when you were pregnant. With my daughter, yes, I did. So women, she wanted to teach girls that women were stronger than what they were being told they were. In July, the leaders of the Jacobin, the leader of the Jacobins in France, was beheaded, and just like that, the terror was over, which meant Emily could resume business there. So again, he left. Mary was sure that even though he told her that he was fond of her and Fanny, she had suspicions that he was bored with family life and had the idea, and he had the idea of deserting them. Mary wanted to live with him in Paris, but he delayed this by announcing he was now traveling to London. Hmm. What do you think's going on? I think homeboy's cheating on her. After he left in the summer of 94, Mary said, fuck it. Packed up Fanny and went to Paris anyway. She's going to find him. Well, he's in London. He moved to Paris. She wanted to go to Paris with him. And he's like, no, no, no. Don't come to Paris because I'm going to London. She said, fuck it. And she just went to Paris. She didn't listen. She didn't do what she was told. She did what she wanted to do. Yeah, well, I don't do what I'm told. <sighs> I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> now that the fighting was over, things were quickly getting back to normal. So she felt safe. The problem was... Mary hadn't earned any money in over a year. Johnson paid her for the French Revolution in advance, and money was very thin. Emily had set up funds with an American friend of his so she could get money whenever she needed it. But this made her feel more like his mistress than his wife, even if that was just a farce. And on top of that, she now had no one to help her with Fanny. She had to carry the baby everywhere, every task, or Aaron turned into a project, and even though she was exhausted, she was too overcome with worry and thought to sleep. And when she did manage to close her eyes, she'd be awoken by Fanny. Yeah, I... The life of a single mother. I remember those days. But these were the days where you didn't have a TV to turn on to help drown stuff out. You didn't have any help other than you just had you. I didn't use TV to put my kids to sleep. My boys had a TV in their room, but I didn't use it to put them to sleep. No, but she didn't even have any other little kids to help her with anything either. Like, go get this for me. Go get that for me real quick or anything like that. She literally was doing everything on her own 
without all the helpful amenities of what we might have today. Yeah, it's true, which sucks. Yeah. To conserve what money she did have, Mary decided to move to a less expensive apartment as Emily had not paid the rent past September. Her new lodgings were with a German family, and when she observed the husband helping his wife take care of the children, she was moved to tears. Again and again, she wrote to absent Gilbert, painting touching domestic scenes, hoping against hope that these vignettes would tempt him back, but Gilbert's letters became infrequent and sloppy. Mary was too busy and tired to work or even read, so she begrudgingly went to Emily's friend to get the money he had left for her. She was humiliated at having to ask for money, but it was worth it. She was finally able to get some help, the most of which came from her new nanny, Marguerite, who would be a loyal companion until the day Mary died. Now, Mary could finally read, work, and get some much-needed alone time. She was even able to attend a party or two. And people don't realize how much you need your few minutes of alone time. Especially as a par- as a new parent, because you go from not having somebody to take care of to having somebody to take care of literally every second of the day. You need a few minutes to just do nothing. Yeah, it, even now that my kids are older, I still... You still got to get away from them every once in a while. Yeah, I don't get alone time. No. Now, this was a time in France where the fashion was changing from the large, overdone hoop type dresses to a more sheer form-fitting yet still flowy slit up the leg dresses that fit Mary's statuesque figure very well. In fact, the dresses were so small and light that women used to brag and even bet on theirs being the lightest. (laughs) We're talking ounces, she thinks, those mere ounces that these things weighed. And with this new fashion and Mary's at the time, beauty and voluptuous figure, she drew much of the attention when she walked into a room, mostly from men, married men, which, to say the least, didn't go over too well with the women, most of whom became very jealous. And all of this stuff kind of comes back to play later on uh, when we talk about her reputation uh, after she passes away. Uh, This you know, oh, well, she was a whore type stuff, kind of comes back to to bite her in the ass, even though she didn't do anything. She did kind of flaunt the fact that she was out braiding with all these other men in this flashy dress to Gilbert, try to get make him jealous. Doesn't really work, but, you know, she goes to that extent, too. She's kind of doing whatever she can. Yeah, I could, I think my egg donor called me a whore because um, even as a teenager, I'd rather hang out with, guy friends than girls and even into my adulthood because i don't like hanging around with girls that much well she she wasn't big on hanging around women either she's much rather hanging hang around the men because the men could talk about shit and the women just gossip that's pretty much like, she wanted to I have wanted... discussion she didn't want to gossip exactly that's yeah. why i hung out with the guys more well as the day shortened mary's money again began to run out in the winter of 94 into 95 would be the coldest on record, bread prices skyrocketed and meat became an unthinkable luxury. Wood grew so expensive that many Parisians resorted resorted to burning their furniture. By the end of December, Mary's letters to Gilbert had become sharply critical. She condemned his mercantile ambitions, 
using the clear, bold phrases she had employed in her vindications, quote, When you first entered into these plans, you bounded your views to the gaining of a thousand pounds. It was sufficient to have procured a farm in America, which would have been an independence. You find now that you did not know yourself and that a certain situation in life is more necessary to you than you imagined, more necessary than an uncorrupted heart. Frustrated and abandoned though she felt Mary had managed to formulate an ethical stance against Gilbert's commercialism, her letters becoming her letters becoming as philosophical as they were personal elaborated the ideas she had begun to develop the previous summer. The problems of life devoted to commerce versus the life of the mind. Quote, Believe me, sage sir, you have not sufficient respect for the imagination. I could prove to you in a trice that it is the mother of sentiment, the great distinction of our nature, the only purifier of the passions. The imagination is the true fire stolen from heaven to animate this cold creature of clay, producing all those fine sympathies that lead to rapture, fending men social by expanding their hearts instead of leaving them leisure to calculate how many comforts society affords. Theirs was a battle between two ways of life. Mary felt an idea that actually gave her strength as it meant that she was arguing not just for herself, but for general principles, that human connection over mercantile transaction, art and the imagination over the acquisition of wealth. Quote, I know what I look for to found my happiness on. It is not money. Mary ended up catching a severe respiratory infection, and Emily finally invited her to stay with him in London. But, honestly, she wasn't sure she wanted to go. For one, she knew how the public viewed women like her, and she did not want her daughter growing up in such a restrictive environment. She'd be better off in France. Two, she wasn't sure she could rely on Gilbert to be there for her and Fanny. She wrote to him, quote, Am I only to return to a country that has not merely lost all charms for me, but for which I feel a repugnance that almost amounts to horror, only to be left there a prey to it? To this, Emily responded with words Mary had longed to read for months. Quote, Business alone has kept me from you. Come to any port, and I will fly down to my two dear girls with a heart all their own. Mary rushed to make arrangements to travel, including weaning Fanny off of her breast, because everybody knows that a breastfeeding woman cannot have sex. <sighs> yeah. On April 9th, 1795, Mary, Fanny, and Marguerite sailed for London. Though Mary still worried about what or who she would find when she got there, they landed in Dover on April 11th, a big day in this house, and Emily was nowhere to be found. They didn't see him until they arrived in London by carriage, and although she was happy to see him, she could tell right away that this was not the man that she had fallen in love with all that time ago. He was not the same man that she was dream dreaming about every night. He rented them an elegantly furnished apartment and then informed her that he expected to retain his freedom in all ways. Mary taught Fanny how to say Papa, trying to reach Gilbert's heart, but he was too preoccupied with work. What a fucking asshole. You see, clever and ambitious 
ambitious Imley came up with a plan in which his French customers would pay the commodities he imported in bourbon silver, an illegal currency in Britain, Austria, and Prussia with whom France was at war, but perfectly legal in out-of-the-way Scandinavia, where Imley established a contact, a merchant named Ellis Bachmann, who was based in Gothenburg in Sweden. Bachmann was happy to take French silver in exchange for the goods he had to sell, such as wheat, soap, and iron, or to convert the silver into currency that Emily could use in Britain and in America. As the middleman, Emily hoped to become rich. Very rich. And now, the ship had gone missing. And no matter how much Mary pressed, all that Emily talked or worried about was what he would lose if the ship wasn't found. He refused to talk about the relationship, and Mary fell, again, into the deepest despair she had ever known. She accused him of greed and shallowness. He told her he needed variety and amusement. He asked her to stop making scenes. She made more. He begged her to not weep. She wept more. He urged her to stop hounding him for a commitment. She promised to stop, but a few minutes later, she would drive him out of the house with her angry words and then collapse into tears when he was gone. Un unbeknownst to Mary or Gilbert, Mary was now suffering with a yet undiagnosed condition that we all know as depression. Yeah, that's obvious. She would go on to battle this for many months to come. She couldn't go to any of her friends with this. She absolutely refused to write to Johnson. She did let her sister know that she was her sisters know that she was back in London, but also let them know that she had no money to give them or a place for them to stay, which pissed them off because they still thought that she should be taking care of them even though they were grown-ass women. Yeah, that's fucked up. Gilbert, on top of that, made things worse by telling her that he could not love her now and he wasn't sure about the future. And when she asked him to simply tell her whether or not he wanted to live with her, he couldn't make up his mind. He refused to commit to either or. He wouldn't say, I don't want to be with you, but he refused to say, I do want to be with you. He just kind of left her in purgatory. Don't give me that look. I put a ring on it, goddammit. <laughs> She felt unloved. Um, she felt unlovable. She felt that maybe Fanny would be better off without her. So, the end of May, a month after her 36th birthday, Mary swallowed poison. Later, she described the experience in notes in her unfinished novel, Maria. Quote, She swallowed the laud laudanum. Her soul was calm. The tempest had subsided. Then nothing remained but an eager longing to forget herself. To fly from the anguish she endured, to escape from thought. From this hell of disappointment, her head turned. A stupor ensued, a faintness. Have a little patience, she said, holding her swimming head. She thought of her mother. This cannot last long. And what is a little bodily pain to the pangs I have endured? She wasn't unconscious long. Emily found her and brought, brought a doctor that proceeded to induce, quote, violent vomiting. Emily knew she would probably attempt it again if he didn't do something. So 
He took her into his arms and showered her with kisses and words of love. Then you're looking at me. He didn't do any of that shit. No, he immediately started thinking up a, up a way to get her the fuck out of London. He still cared about her, but he wasn't in love with her. He needed her to be gone so she couldn't harass him about commitment. And because it didn't look too good to have your quote-unquote wife try to commit suicide. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't look good, but... That's not good for business. No. So, he asked her to head back to Scandinavia to see about his missing ship. She was surprised at the offer. Women were never given this type of responsibility, but she saw it as a chance to prove her worth to Emily. She saw that he still wanted her in his life, at least... Somewhat. And that he trusted her with this most important endeavor. And she hoped that by completing this task in full, that she would possibly win back his heart. And that is where we will pick it up for Mary Wollstonecraft, part three. God damn. <laughs> Fucking Emily. <sighs> Bastard. Emily. I said Emily. It sounded like you said Emily. No, Emily. Yeah. Emily. It's like Emily really fast. <laughs> I am L A Y. M Lay. M Lay. Just call him old Gilbert. Gil Gilbert. <laughs> so I told you at the beginning she'd kind of be her own worst enemy, and she's turning into that because she won't get out of her own fucking head. The, I think that's everyone's issue, uh, especially a lot of people with anxiety. When it comes to depression and anxiety, you are your own worst enemy because you are the only person who can make it better. But yet, to make it better, you have to stop believing in the things that are making you sad in the first place. And that's damn near impossible to do. Well, and and on top of that, she's got separation anxiety. She has uh, an obsessive disorder, I think, as when it comes to people in her life. She's probably dealing... I mean, she's got... Depression, obviously, but I think a lot of it's postpartum, which is even worse than just plain depression because you really start to think about doing things that even most depressed people don't think about doing. That's harming, you know, children and other people around you. And, uh, I mean, she goes as far as tries to kill herself. Um, I don't want to give anything away. I'd like to say it's the last time that she tries to, that she does this stuff. She... Again, it's not, this whole thing isn't as bad as some of the other stuff that we've talked about before, but it, it, it's going to be a while before she's okay. And she will eventually be okay. And things will eventually be happy for her. Now, again, what show are you on? How long do you think happiness lasts? It's always when you're the happiest, that's when life comes and slaps you in the face. So everybody's got that to look forward to. I'm not going to give too much away. But you feel bad for her now, but eventually, in not too terribly long, you know, a couple of years, she will be okay. She will be happy. She will be in a good place. I, I, I get it. But you know, I've been, like, she is my spirit. She's your spirit animal. A spirit animal. I, I never tried to commit suicide, but I was a cutter. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've been down in those depths where i thought i could never get out and yeah, i didn't do it but there was a few times where i had contemplated it when i was going through some shit that i had 
I had gone through, you know, losing my daughter and then some other stuff. It, it definitely creeps up on you. I, again, I never tried anything, but you know, the thoughts do cross your mind when you get to that point. I think it happens to everybody. She just, and for some people might be able to take this a lot better, but, and I really think that it hurt her so much that she was this strong woman and all of a sudden now she felt like she had to have a man in her life. Yeah, it's it's like once you, once you're around someone so much and you're dependent on them to live, it's like you don't know how to live without them anymore. Well, she becomes very obsessive over people very quickly. True. Jane, she became obsessive almost immediately. Fanny, she became obsessive almost immediately. It took a little bit with Fusili, but she became obsessive pretty quickly. And over the course of a few weeks of getting to know Emily, she became very obsessive of him. So it's something that's gonna. It's something that she just. Yeah, but it seems like once she meets somebody new, it's easy for her to get over the person previously. Emily will take her a while. Eventually, yes. Eventually, we'll get to the point where she will run into him in the town square. And um, it'll be cordial, and she'll be able to walk away without feeling uh, despair about it. She'll be okay. But it does take a little while. And, of course, always having somebody new in your life helps. But that's all I'm going to say about that. If you want to know more, you have to turn it, tune in. No, tune tune in. This isn't a fucking radio. <laughs> you, you have to bring up Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or... Ping on your Alexa and say, hey, Alexa, play open a fucking book. And, and it will do it. We found that out. Um, it was so cool. It, it was cool. <laughs> so you just have to wait until next week to find out. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get our fucking socials out there. Okay. As always, we are on Twitter and Instagram. Not so much on the Instagram all that much. but um, I try I to am, post something on Yeah, it. every once in a while. I am at ECJBAT. Um, we are at open a f-i-n-g book uh we are at audio parfait i'm at young etam6 on twitter young etam on instagram i I personally post more on instagram or do more on instagram than twitter but open a fucking book i am on twitter through a good portion of the day so you can look for us on twitter we're, we're working with some other podcasts gonna be hopefully doing you know getting some trailers out there so in the next coming weeks if you're starting to hear promos and trailers from other podcasts don't be surprised because we're we're going to start promoting other people's they're going to start promoting us and it's we're the big podcast family our network is going to be working with other networks and try to get everybody pushed out there so everybody's content's getting heard oh also uh if you've listened to weekday clip notes my test results came back negative for covid so yay yeah which we'll probably cover on I know it's not real, but that hasn't hurt since this is coming out a week after that. Oh, well, shit. Yeah, this isn't coming out this Saturday. This is coming out next Saturday. Oh. But it's okay. Don't worry. Whatever. She's, you could just cut it out. Hopefully, she's still negative. <laughs> I told her, it came back in like one day. I said, well, maybe you maybe you don't have the virus so much that it was an immediate negative. Yeah, super negative. They, like, they saw it and they're like, she... Less it's, than 24 hours to get to the, re- scary the results. scary how it's scary how little COVID she has. Like, <laughs> like she should at least have a little bit in order to be normal. She has so little COVID. Um, you could email us at info at audioparfait.com. Go to our website, audioparfait.com. We have all the episodes of this show, including our weekday cliff notes. 
and episodes of our other podcasts. I know it's not real, but that had to hurt. If you like wrestling, if you like hearing wrestling news or rumors or just two people arguing about who they think is better and what they love and what the other one hates about wrestling, uh, go listen to that one. Uh, go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash audio parfait if you think we deserve a couple dollars for all the hard work that we do on this show. If not, it's still going to be free. But if you want to, we'd appreciate it. Again, like I've been saying past few weeks, go to your bookstores, go to your local library, uh, patronize them, help them out. Volunteer if you can. Just go in there, wipe down books if they let you do that. Uh, throw a couple of dollars to your local bookstore, buy a book that you've been looking at but haven't just haven't gone and done it instead of going on Amazon or something. You know, if, if the bookstore's open, put your fucking mask on, go into the bookstore, and, you know, buy a book. Preferably from a local author. You know, yeah, author. I'm supposed to get my new books today, so maybe I'll share a picture of my new books. Yeah, well, and Stephanie's starting to work on the uh, Goodreads account for uh, Open a Fucking Book, so hopefully the things that we're reading have read um, the books that we have researched for this and the books that we mentioned on weekday cliff notes. We'll have all those up there so you can go you know, look and see and we'll you know review what we can, what we have read. And, uh, well, fuck, I think that's it. That's it. All right, well, come back on uh, the middle of the week next week for another episode of weekday cliff notes. And then we'll see you this time next week for Mary Wollstonecraft Part 3, the yeah. final episode. And then we'll start a new office, like we do every week. Yay! All right, guys. Well, take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. And between now, the time we get to talk to you again, do yourself a favor. Go open a fucking book. All right. We'll see you. Bye, guys.